in terms of establishing himself as an author that I would want to emulate. It would be Todd. Um, and then there are a lot of others that I've, I've looked up to over the years that I may be further away from or have passed away long enough ago that it's hard for me to directly emulate them. Um, but, yeah. But do you uh, admire any of them as a reader? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, I... I am somebody who writes and reads a lot of science fiction. Um, Heinlein is going to be one of the big ones for me. Mm-hmm. I have so much of his stuff, and I still periodically find some that I hadn't realized existed. Because uh, apart from other things, I'm, I'm not very good at keeping a a catalog of what I have and haven't read. Um, and somebody had asked me at one point, you know, who is the author that that kind of made you think in a very real term, like, hey, I can do this too, and that would be Douglas Adams. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, just because it seemed like he was having so much fun writing his science fiction worlds, and um, and I, I had been someone who was worried about, like, well, if I'm letting myself have too much fun, then maybe I'm not ticking off all the boxes that the audience expects. And then when I read Hitchhiker, I was like, oh, I, I can write the things that I would enjoy reading. I can write the kinds of stories that I would enjoy telling. And and hopefully I will also find people who enjoy reading what I enjoy writing. That makes sense. I actually mm-hmm. think that if you're not enjoying it, if it doesn't touch you, it's not going to touch your audience. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a, I think it's a trap that a lot of um, early writers will fall into where they're trying to do a lot of the things that they think are supposed to make them successful. And... And they end up losing some of that joy in the process, mm-hmm. and, and write something that uh, I don't. I don't want to say sounds canned, but that's the first phrase that's coming to mind. That they're basically trying to to mimic somebody else's process who is doing something successfully, but that other person is doing it genuinely, and it comes out in a way that sounds real and appeals to their readers, with whatever amount of like practice and and established audience they have and these new writers who are trying to emulate those people aren't doing it with the same practice instincts established audience or as it turns out as much joy because they're they're trying to copy what somebody else has done yeah that's true i just like some writers are very distinct like hemingway you know no one else could write like hemingway wrote and anybody who tries to copy hemingway you're going to sound canned because only Hemingway wrote that, and it was believable doing it. <laughs> but, I mean, it just, it, I think it's kind of interesting because I, I love writing, write, reading books, and I'm a, a huge reader as well as a writer, and I think one of the fun things is discovering new writers, but I'm also a fan of classic uh uh, writers like you were saying, you like Heinlein. The one of the first books my um, my father gave me was a Heinlein book because he was trying to wean me off mysteries, and he, he gave me um, I forgot the name of it. The one with where where they grok everybody. Oh yeah, that would be Stranger in a Strange Stranger Land. Stranger in a Strange Land. That was the first yeah. science fiction book. Um, well, that was that was the first full science fiction book I ever read. The first science fiction story I ever read was Ray Bradbury, I Think the Body Electra. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think that, I don't know, I would say The Stranger in a Strange Land is, uh, is an interesting transition point for science fiction. Also, I, I feel like it would not be the first one that I would recommend to people for Heinlein, because I would be like, get something fun and adventure, or if you're looking for the 
analytical philosophical side of things then I, I feel like the first one that I would jump into would be the moon is a harsh mistress because um, you can have a lot of fun with the characters and the science fiction of that one while still hitting some of those big ticket questions but a stranger in a strange land is its own kind of animal and uh, and I, I I enjoyed it but I also understand why it has some of its detractors and um, yeah it's a weird one to jump into well, I think he was just trying to get me to be interested. Yeah. Did uh, it work? Because it doesn't have any bug-eyed monsters and trying to blow aliens away and stuff. like. He knew I wouldn't be interested in that kind of a book. So that's probably why he did that. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Uh, and that's what kept me from science fiction for a long time. Every time I saw, you know, War of the Worlds, and I love H.G. Wells. But every time I saw a movie, it was like that. The first movie that was science fiction I fell in love with was also H.G. Wells, but it was The Time Machine, which was a story. Uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's fair. Um, and it, what really shocked me was when I read the book is how short it is. <laughs> it is one of the well, shortest I, I books I've ever read. I think a lot of Wells was pretty short, and like, and a lot of a lot of novels um, prior to the, I mean, there there was some movement between like the mid '70s and mid '90s. A lot of the novels were things that we nowadays think of as novellas. They were in the forty to sixty thousand word range, as opposed to these, you know, um, eighty to one hundred to one hundred fifty thousand, and then in like epic fantasy, these two hundred sixty thousand word monstrosities. So, so yeah, there was definitely much shorter narratives. Uh, I some of like the earliest um, science fiction, or maybe maybe space fantasy, is more accurate um, that I read through pretty thoroughly is is the John Carter series. Uh, so Edgar Rice Burroughs, Princess of Mars, and go from there. And these are short books. Mm -hmm. These are like you know, you, you get. Uh, a nice chunk of a weekend where you're sitting out on a beach and reading through a, a book about jumping around on Mars with a longsword, um, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> Actually, the first of Burroughs I ever read was Tarzan. My dad had a, all the Tarzan, you know how you have an end table and there's like a little hole and you're supposed to like put like whatever in there, like your slippers or something? My dad had all his Tarzan books in there. Yep. <laughs> and so when I was about nine, I went over and I asked, Dad, can I read your Tarzan books? He goes, sure. And so, and like you said, they're really short. So yep. I would take like about four of them. <laughs> yep. But toward the end, I really didn't like it. But um, I, he kind of lost his gift. Um, but the, at the beginning, Tarzan was so different than the movie I was Tarzan was intelligent. He spoke yeah. three languages. He wrote. Uh, he was. Uh, 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 he he communicated very well. Um, yeah. it, it just. And then they have him in the movie. Me, Tarzan, you, Jane. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, and I, I think that's also something that happened a lot in cinema with uh, with anything that was in that speculative fiction realm. Um, think of Frankenstein, for example like groundbreaking film and, and Boris Karloff's playing the creature and that's what people think of as Frankenstein and then when you read the book because um, you know for a lot of us we were exposed to the, the movie or the show or the costume or something before we read the novel Frankenstein Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and in that one 
the the creature is intelligent, and mm-hmm. so is Doctor Frankenstein. And the kinds of questions that they asked about who has a right to to bring whom to life and at what costs become much more philosophical questions that didn't necessarily translate to the uh, you know the rubbery costumes on the screen. Do you know the story of that? Um, why she wrote it? I have heard a lot of renditions, but but you go ahead. I thought it was really interesting. A volcano went off in the Greek islands. Not It was a big one, but it wasn't a huge one. But it was enough that there was a bad cloud that darkened all of Europe. And so they were in, I think they were in Switzerland, and it was really dark. And uh, this was during the day. And so it was getting kind of... Um, difficult. So Shelley, uh, the poet, her boyfriend at the time. Yeah, Percy Bysshe Shelley, yeah. Yeah. He said, why don't each of us, and I think the other was Byron. Lord Byron. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what, and uh, uh, Mary's sister. Um, and they said, why don't each of us write a story? So and all the three of, the three others could write one. And Mary was having a really hard time. And with the darkness and the gloominess and everything, she went to sleep, and she had a nightmare. And the nightmare was about the monster. And the, really, the monster was trying desperately to be understood. And that's where it was born, was from a nightmare from a volcano. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And she wrote the best story of the bunch. They all wrote stories that, all oh, poor Mary can't write. Oh, and then she read the most popular, uh, one of the most popular books of all time. <laughs> and it was kind of, it was, it was, I just think it's a, I don't know if it's true, but I've read it like four or five different ways in different places. So it, it must have a grain of truth in it. I think so, yeah. So I've I've heard, yeah, I've definitely heard pieces of that rendition as well. Sometimes the, the intent behind their, agreements to write stories or their best to see who can write the best story changes depending on who's telling it um and yeah and frequently i hear about it in terms of of mary and percy shelley and then uh lord byron um starting the muse that that brought the story about yeah um some people were claiming that percy wrote the book and Percy was the first one. You know, you, you can complain about some men, but Percy was a mensch about this. He stood up and said, no, Mary wrote it. I edited it, but Mary wrote it. Every word is hers. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. they wanted, they wanted, because it's such a brilliant story, and it was a young woman, so they wanted to take it away from the woman and give it to the man. And they weren't even married yet. Oh, I didn't know that they weren't married at the time. Or maybe I had known that and it filtered out of my brain, but no. Yeah, they were just boyfriend. They were just boyfriends and girlfriends hanging out. They were young. Uh, I think they were like 16 to 19 or something. They were all teenagers. I think Byron was the oldest. He was like 19. Okay. Intriguing. Yeah. Um, uh, they, uh... Shelley and Byron were both famous as poets already. Yeah. But the girls wrote poetry but weren't famous yet. Mm-hmm. 
And if I remember right, their dad was a famous writer, too, and I just can't remember what his name was. Um, um, I mean, it, like, Mary Shelley's original name, like, Wollstonecraft or something? Is, yeah. Yeah, which, which is one of those names that sounds like it would lend itself much better to publishing gothic fiction, like Mary Wollstonecraft. Yeah. Um, that's, <laughs> that's a very cool name. But that he, he, the, the father was supposed, if I remember right, my, you know, age and everything. But if I remember right, he was supposed to be a famous author himself. I think that makes sense. I, I'll be honest. I don't. I don't. I don't know which pieces of this I have heard or heard anymore. Um, it's been a long time since I have have studied and or taught uh, Frankenstein. So there's that. Um, I have. I've. I've taught the novel before, but you know that was with more of a focus on on the novel as opposed to the life circumstances of the the authors and the author's friends that surround it. I'm I'm somebody who's not good at keeping track of all of that. Oh, I love that part. I love every part. I'm one of those really weird people that if I really like an author, I have to read every part of their life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I um I actually took a class uh, I was going to UCLA at the time, and when I saw this class, I had to take it. They had a class on the Brontes, and I had just fallen in love with Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. And so it was really interesting because I didn't know anything about any of them. And, you know, the fallacy of the three innocent girls who never left York and they didn't know anything about the world was complete bull. They were all well educated. They were they all uh well, Emily didn't leave, but they were all well educated and um Anne and Charlotte both Charlotte. left York many times. Um uh it it it's it just really you when you find out the truth, it's much more interesting than the historical baloney that's passed on about people. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Anyway, that that's me. I just I, I did that with um F. Scott Fitzgerald, Jane Austen, any classic writer, uh H. G. Wells. Um <laughs> I like I to read about the, the author. What? I did that with some of the playwrights at one point. Um oh, Yep, that too. But, but you know, <laughs> it, I it didn't it didn't help me write plays any better to my knowledge um and so focusing on their work and how it appeared on stage just ended up being where my attention went um so yeah but i, I definitely dug really deep into uh, into george bernard shaw um and into beckett uh, in particular those were two that i that i studied like crazy and i and i love their work um and and yet studying their life circumstances didn't uh didn't seemed to change much about my writing, my acting, directing, so on and so forth. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to keep going with the work as work. And, and if a life circumstance pops up that happens to be really relevant or cool, then I, I might notice that, but it might also filter its way out of my head. I think Shaw's really interesting. In fact, one of the things I remember, because I'm an I'm a actress and I'm a theater buff too, um, but uh, one of the things he, uh, Vivian Lee did Cleopatra, both the Shakespeare Cleopatra and the Shaw Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. 
And so they had to get permission from Shaw for her to do the, the his version of um, Anthony, was it, no, it was, it was Caesar and Cleopatra that he wrote. And um, he said, uh, I think it was Rex Harrison who was going to play Caesar, and he wanted to change the line about, no, it was, it was a big guy who was going to play Caesar and not a skinny guy who was going to play Caesar, so he wanted to change the line to reflect the actor and Vivian said oh no no I can I can act exactly what you wrote and still convey it even though the person isn't exactly how you described it and he goes my dear if I'm writing it it's an improvement <laughs> and I'm like whoa that has the biggest ego <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> but yeah, he was a brilliant playwright. I mean, yeah. uh I I loved his work, but I just thought that was really funny. Um but I thought it was sweet of her to say, "No, I want to stick by what you wrote." <laughs> mm -hmm. Um so is there um is there a style of writing that you prefer? I, I mean, I know you write science fiction, but is there, uh, is it narrative or is it more painting a picture with your words? What type of uh, writing do you prefer to write? It's a good question. It's also a, a fairly open-ended question. Um, I really like reading and writing for those moments at the end of a scene or at the end of a paragraph that are able to make you pause and go, oh, that's how that works. Um, and and so I, I tend to lean in that direction where I'm going to search for some element of discovery, realization, and this big turning point choice moment. And I try to affect that at the ends of most of the scenes. This also means that I, I write very character-driven, very character-narrated stories. Um, even though, um, so my, my wife is my first reader, and even though she typically does not get into a lot of people's first-person narratives, I tend to write primarily in first person so that I can stay very nested into how that character would think about something. And so the, the narrative voice always has a bias, it always has some end goal that it's going toward, it is always trying to figure out some amount of self-awareness where it can be able to to address, ah, here's where I screwed this up and here's where I realized my mistake. Um, and, and so that's something that I, I find that I enjoy when I'm reading things as well. Um, so lately in science fiction there have been a lot of authors who are taking that the very intentional narrative voice, and they're not just using I statements because it's convenient to, you know, give the story through somebody else's lens. They are very deliberately putting it through that character's emotional intent and that character's way of describing things. Um, so, one of the ones that came out recently that's, been, that's gotten a lot of praise for good reason um, is Project Hail Mary. Um, by Andy Weir or, or where I've heard it pronounced both ways. I assume it's Weir, but I'm not sure. Um, where you have a character who is going to get very excited about the, the scientific phenomena that he encounters along the way and 
why it matters for him and give his inner monologue as if he were explaining it to his middle school students because among other things he's a middle school teacher or was um you know between writing this scientific paper that nearly got him ousted from the community and going into the project that's going to save the, the human species and earth um and a couple others that stand out uh Dennis E. Taylor, who wrote the Bobiverse series, so We Are Legion, We Are Bob, um, and uh, Jan Chaney, who is an absolute machine at cranking out words and has been doing um, paired projects with people lately. And I've, I've, I've made comment to one of the people who has co-written with Jan Chaney, like, if I have the opportunity to write a book alongside him, I totally will. That is something that I would take up in an instant. Um, and Jan Chaney wrote uh, the Renegade Star series, which once again, first person narrator, somebody who is very locked into how he likes to view the universe and has to confront that on a regular basis. And in some cases, completely readdress where he made a serious mistake in what he was looking at and what he was analyzing. Um, so a lot of my style comes from that intention. Um, if I have established a character and how they are going to look at things and when they're going to realize things, then that tends to drive a lot of how they're going to sound. Um, conveniently enough, I, if I change the intention and I change some of the, the core values of that character, then the way they sound can be very different for different stories. Um, but it always comes with a high degree of intentionality, and I think that helps to move the story forward. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, so I want to, uh, talk about, uh, well, congratulations on, uh, Writers of the Future. Uh, how did you find out that you were part of that? Oh, I mean, I, I think like anyone else, um, I sent a story and then I, I guess maybe unlike other people, I got to work on other things that I was trying to look at publishing deadlines for, um, and you know, then somewhere along the way, I got the call from uh, from Joni, so Joni Lubaki, um, and uh, with Author Services and Galaxy Press, called me to let me know that I was a finalist and to, to make sure that I hadn't sold the story elsewhere and that I was still interested in being considered for the thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. I'm, I'm in. Um, and then, you know, got the, got the follow-up call that I was a, a quarterly first-place winner. Um, and that was just, that was an excellent feeling. Uh, it wasn't something that I had been banking on, or um, it might be uncouth to say this, but it wasn't something that I was necessarily even aiming for. Um, I, I, had, I had only submitted to the contest a couple of times, and I submitted based on being told that, you know, it's, it's an anonymous submission, uh, so you only are known if, if it does really well. If, if the story is rejected or is an honorable mention, then the first readers never know who sent what. So you can't actually give a bad impression. And you get to do it four times a year free of charge. Between those ones, I was like, oh, cool. This is worth sending things out for just for the practice of submitting stories. Um, and my first one was a semifinalist. And, uh, and a lot of people in my, in my overlapping writing communities were sort of freaking out in a positive way over this. And having this like, oh wow, you were a semifinalist on your first go. How did you do that? What's what's going on? Are you gonna keep submitting from there? And I was like, like, okay, this is really cool. This is a big deal. And I I didn't really know at the time that it was a big deal or how big of a deal it was. Um, 
and then I submitted ones in between, honorable mention, and then the third time, I sent a story not that I had written for Rise of the Future. It was a story that I had written for myself at the beginning of the pandemic because it was a story that I really needed to read and I couldn't find out there, so I wrote it. Um, and and then the story that I had planned on sending was already in consideration uh, with a submission elsewhere, and so I went through my list of short stories that weren't sent out, and in particular, this one is called The Squid is My Brother. And I was like, oh, yeah, I really enjoyed writing that one. And, and it was it was a great emotional experience for me at the time, at the beginning of the COVID shutdown, when all the schools were closed and, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the students and parents and admins and teachers were freaking out and trying to figure out what to hang on to at the beginning of that. This was like in, in April of 2020. And so I wrote that story. And then come December 2020, when it was closing on Right of the Future, cool i'll send it sent the story a few months later got the call got the follow-up call it was the winner and and i guess the rest on that is is history in some senses but there were a lot of things that developed from there and, and you know having that win on my resume that is is great um did you enjoy the workshops i did yeah um i i went with uh let's see how do i put this um Oh, here, actually, I can defer to somebody else on this. Uh, so one of the, the people that I met um, through these writing groups in the aftermath of the win was Martin Shoemaker. Um, and Martin was a, if I'm not mistaken, Volume 31 winner and has since been publishing um, science fiction novels with Bain. And, and I love his books, and I've also enjoyed talking with him and working with him, and since then he's sort of been mentoring me. Um, among other things, on, on writing through dictation. And so when we were getting closer to the dates of the workshop, he was somebody that I would message on a regular basis to kind of like check in with. And I had to realize that I was coming into the workshop in, I'm going to say, a different place than some of the other folks who were coming into the workshop. And, and this is where I have to kind of say what the win led to. Um, so the first place win was announced uh, May 4th, Star Wars Day, of uh, 2021 and shortly after I got picked up by a, a publisher and and they published three of my novels um, and and that's something that I, I didn't expect to happen between having the win announced and going to the workshop but that meant that like by the time I, I showed up to this workshop I had already uh, proed out to the point that I would no longer be eligible to submit to Writers of the Future because I published enough things that I I, I wouldn't have been able to submit at all during 2022. Um, and so I was showing up with with multiple CIFWA uh, qualifying short stories under my belt and three novels that had been published in the last few months. And so I was talking to Martin about like, okay, how do I approach this? How do I address this? Um, and, and he was very big on telling me, you know, be confident know that there are some things that you're already doing that are working for you know that there are some things that you're going to hear from these speakers that's going to be their opinion their perspective and it might apply to you very differently than some of the others who are just looking to get started um and so yeah so i can say that the workshop was excellent i can also say that i i did have to approach it in terms of i already have um a few novels out and i already have a publisher who is asking me for for more um, so I mean, at, at this rate, I still have several more novels that I'm that I've been invited to write uh, in the next couple of years. Um, so it, it was a very different experience in terms of 
which things I was looking at in terms of, all right, this is great for me right now. This is something that would have been really good for me to know maybe a year ago, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm I'm at a point where it's not going to help my current trajectory. And there were some things where I had to take the notes and file away and be like, this might be something to look at again in two years, five years, 10 years. Um, I really liked getting the range of perspectives from very different people. And I liked being able to see that, you know, even if they could be completely diametrically opposed, these authors who were presenting could still come together and hang out afterwards and have a beer. So in particular, um, they had Robert J. Sawyer and uh, Dean Wesley Smith almost back to back in their presentations. And they have completely opposite opinions on how to approach publishing and what kinds of things are worthwhile to write in speculative fiction and to try to get published. Um, so being able to see the range of, ex of, of expectations and approaches, uh, I, I really appreciated that. Well, I think that's one of the good things about going to a seminar like that is to see all the different approaches. Mm -hmm. I think so. <laughs> that's, that's a good learning thing. It gives yeah. you a good curve. Yep. Um, so w when you went to the award ceremony and mm -hmm. you got announced and you went up, did you have your Oscar moment? Did you feel like you floated out of your body and all that good stuff? Oh, I did not. I was... Uh, <laughs> um, I, I've been um, teaching for a number of years, so addressing a large group is comfortable and familiar to me, and I've also done a lot of theater. Um, and, and through the theater slash teaching, I have been called in to announce and emcee uh, several events. So speaking in front of a large group, that wasn't new to me, so that part I was not nervous about. Um, I, I was, I'm, I'm somebody who does not like uh, traditional formal wear for men. I tend to find it very uncomfortable, so I was nervous about that. Uh, <laughs> and I was also uh, sort of struck right before speaking about some of the um, like emotional impact that some of what I was going to say might have. And so that was the thing that I wasn't totally prepared for. Um, and and this was this was. Uh, I think a pretty common thread for many of us, but I had not done a good job of preparing for it. Um, so Dave Farland, you know, passed earlier this year, and and that was something that I had I had struggled with, and then sort of dealt with emotionally in a way that that I, I think was pretty common within the community. And then when I got up on stage and was like, I know he is going to be one of the people that I end up thanking. I had this like sudden surge like this kind of clench feeling in my chest and this surge of oh dear what if I break down sobbing when I start talking about Dave <laughs> and, and so that became the, the second point of nervousness so it was those two things um, yeah and so I went up there and actually felt much more emotional about the, the kinds of things that I was saying and it, it, it wasn't a fear of the big group but but I was like, I don't know what level of emotion I'm going to get to and which things I might need to like pause and take a breath before continuing on. It ended up being completely fine. Um, I, you know, when I finished and got down from the stage, um, I asked, uh, I asked one of my friends who had attended and my wife, like, did I say anyone's name wrong? Um, but otherwise I'm like, it should probably be okay. And then I watched through it afterwards and I'm like, cool. All right. Totally fine. Um, but yeah, but it was a, it was a good time to be able to get up there and to be able to to thank a few people and to make
make a couple of, of comments about sort of like where I I'd come from and where I'd been able to go over the course of the, the previous year between the win being announced and actually going and collecting the award. Um, I think that's really cool that you were able to go through that. But the emotion is something that's good, uh, especially when you're talking about someone who inspired you and passed on. I mean, that that just shows you're human, Mike. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I will say I wasn't worried about sort of like looking like I might be emotional. I was worried about like, oh, dear, if this hits me too hard, will I still be able to keep talking? <laughs> oh, um, I see. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, we're coming to the end, and um, I want to give you a chance to talk about anything upcoming or that's out that's uh, other than. Oh, before we go there, what book of uh, Writers of the Future are you in? Uh, the whole name and the number. Yeah. Um, I'm in the L. Ron Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future, Volume 38. Um, and my story is called The Squid is My Brother. Um, I think it's the third story in there, and if you're not sure, well, look for a squid in the table of contents, and you will find it pretty quickly. The illustration is, is very indicative. Um, and, <laughs> and, yeah, the story is about uh, a young kid who is sent to Earth for the first time who grew up on a station where everyone has an alien symbiote attached to their spine, and then, lo and behold, in Earth Elementary School, she is now the only one who does and has to deal with that. Um, <laughs> uh, any other notes that I should make on Writers of the Future 38? Uh, I just wanted to um, know if you, like, when you got uh, your your win and everything, did you get a good reaction from your writing community and your friends? I mean, were they excited for you? And did they uh, watch it when the film came out? Um, I think so. So yeah, I, I think I got mostly, I think I got mostly excitement. Um, I, I, I did end up having conversations with a couple people afterwards about like, hey, these things that, that some people told me to do or not do, um, probably best to be taken with a grain of salt because there were like three things that I was told by different writing groups never to do when writing and submitting a story to writers of the future. And one of them was a first person narrative. One of them was having a, a child narrator slash main character. And a third was having found texts like, uh, in this case, letters and diary entries. And my story has all three and, and they still liked it. And I, and I ended up having this sort of like mini speech that came up from time to time. Like, like, you know, I think if you're trying to fill a formula, the best you can do is honorable mention because you know, if you're if you're going maybe like 70-80% formula, but but 20 to 30% of it is totally you, it's new, it's groundbreaking, it's something different. I think that's going to stick with people more than trying to tick all the boxes and and fit exactly the thing that you think they're looking for. So I ended up having a lot of those conversations with people. Oh, okay. Um but I think otherwise the reception was positive. Yeah. And did you uh did you pick out your illustration right away and did you like it? Yes. Yes, it was very easy to find the illustration, and I very much enjoyed it. I, I did get to meet the illustrator um, a couple days in advance of seeing the illustration, um, and we chatted for a little bit, and she made the remark that she was nervous about about doing this illustration because she usually does things that are more in the fantasy or folklore variety, and mine was science fiction. And she was concerned that she hadn't gotten it science fiction-y enough, um, and, and I... I, I loved it. I thought I thought it was a great rendition, and it 
reminds me of the kind of thing that you would see in an elementary school classroom um, as a as a rendition of science fiction and in some cases sci-fi horror, but uh, brought into an elementary school classroom. <laughs> like that, that totally works. It was a I think it was a perfect style and rendition for what we're going for. Cool. Okay. Now we're going to move to um, other stuff. Uh, um, did you want to tell about any of your news stories that are coming out and where they're coming out and how people can see them and all that good stuff? Yeah. Um, so I I have the three novels of my space opera trilogy, um, This Fine Crew is the name of the trilogy, and the first book, The Signal Out of Space, uh, is available online um, in ebook and paperback. It is on Amazon and/or through my publisher, Chris Kennedy Publishing. And then books two and three are also currently available. And those ones launched in December of 2021, and then January and March of 2022. So still pretty recent. Um, I've been greenlit for books four, five, and six. So I'm working on book four and looking to set a launch date uh, later this year. Um, and so looking. Looking forward to continuing that one. In terms of short stories, I've had a couple come out recently um, through Inked Publishing, their first anthology, Hidden Villains, which also has a story from uh, from Dave Farland. Um, that one came out in late March. Um, and then upcoming through Zombies Need Brains, uh, their anthology, Brave New Worlds, which is all about settling new planets. And I, once again, went in the science fiction space opera direction. Um, had a ton of fun with the stories coming out in that one. That should be this July. And I think the last one that I can mention right now, there are a couple more that I can't because they haven't been fully announced yet. Um, the last one that I can mention right now is through uh, Dreamforge. Um, so I have a story coming out in an upcoming edition of Dreamforge. And, yeah, I otherwise I'll be posting on my website, uh, MikeJacksDreamBoast.com, when we get closer to release dates or actual release dates of new stories. Great. And uh, do you have a website? Yep. Yeah. So the best place to find me is MikeJacksDoonBoast.com. And if you're having trouble spelling my last name, then the easiest place to find it is actually just to go through the the book series, This Fine Crew, or The Signal Out of Space. And then through there, you can direct to website, uh, Twitter, Facebook page, and all of them are under Mike MikeJacksDoonBoast. Okay. And... um... Do you have, like, um, Instagram, too? You know, I do have an Instagram. That is not something that I'm in the habit of using. Um, I don't remember the address for that one. I believe that it still has Mike Jack in there, um, and it is connected onto my website, but it's not one that I'm in the habit of using. I have recently uh, started a Patreon. Um, so it is at patreon.com slash Doombos, and that one is all for, like, concept art and world-building um, songs, poems that are nested into my universes. So if you are curious about that kind of thing, uh, then you can also check out the Patreon, and I'm posting some content on there weekly and building that. Great. Um, we're at the end. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Appreciate the conversation. Thank you very much. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. <laughs>